several times in the past, I've talked about the importance of music. One of the first elements of uh, the spiritual life that's emphasized, it's a result of uh, uh, being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And most of you are aware that we live in a generation where there has been a tremendous assault on what is usually referred to as traditional hymns. And as I have made it clear in the past, the battle isn't between traditional hymns and contemporary. That's a false dichotomy which the wrong side uses in their argument. It's not an argument versus of old versus new. The issue is in terms of the theology of the songs, biblical versus non-biblical, qualitative versus quantitative, instead of singing seven verses the same way, you know, this and uh, in repetition, which is typical of a lot of contemporary music. Um, but it's also a false dichotomy because uh, the argument you often hear from the younger generation is, oh, well, we want, we want music to reflect, the music in the church to reflect the music of our generation. They're the only generation in 2,000 years of Christianity that has had that. The two songs that you just heard, the... I'd rather have Jesus sung by the choir just now and before that, How Great Thou Art, were both products of the 20th century. The words for I'd rather have Jesus were written in 1922, the music in 1939. Does that sound like the big band music that was popular for that generation? Not at all. They understood the distinction between sacred and secular. Uh, How Great Thou Art was written in 1953. That's a, these are contemporary songs, so to speak, but they're not, they're not the contemporary worship music of the present generation. And my point is just to give you those two things as an example of the fact that it's not old versus new. It's not an issue of, um, of, of writing or singing songs that are like the music of our generation it has to do with understanding that when when the believers come together to worship the Lord, we understand, and it's always been understood the church, that what happens during the time of worship um, is a is a holy time. And by that, we accurately use that in terms of both the Hebrew and Greek words. It is a time that is distinct, unique, set apart for God. The music is not a music that is to reflect the culture of the day. The, the message is not a message that should uh, reflect the culture of the day because the music is to, is to elevate us and to focus our thoughts upon who God is and what he has done, to think in terms of the scriptures and what the scriptures teach, and the message is to focus on the word of God and help us to understand what God has said to us. And that is the time-honored viewpoint that has dominated Christianity through the centuries. Yet all of that is under assault in this contemporary generation that can only look at things and only appreciate things that are the product of this generation, which is an extremely self-absorbed, narcissistic view of, of, of church. Yet that is why... We see the growth of some churches to be mega churches because the philosophy of ministry in those churches is catered to the culture. And why we don't see thousands of people at West Houston Bible Church 
is because we don't cater to the culture. And so people don't want to come here because if you walk through these doors and you think about the music that we sing and you think about the doctrine that is taught, we're forced to challenge the basic, foundational, deeply held assumptions that have been uh, taught to us, that we've picked up from the culture around us, so that, that we have to think about, are we living in light of the world? Or are we living in light of God's truth? And that's not a comfortable thought that most Christians, a lot of people today, really want to think deeply about. So our focus here is clearly different. I just uh, wanted to make that note after singing those two songs. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we study his word. Father, we're thankful today that we have your word, that in a culture and a society that is often confused and often uh, speaking out of both sides of its mouth, a culture that seeks to honor all cultures and all truth as absolute and of equal value, that we know that this is irrational, illogical, and cannot be, in fact, true, that there must be a truth a truth that is universal, a truth that is above creation experiences or the experiences of creatures, and a truth that endures above all variations of cultures and experience. And that truth can only come from the one who created all things. And as a creator of human beings who are in your image and likeness, You have given us the ability to understand your communication to us, that as omniscient God, you knew that you would be revealing yourself to us, and as omnipotent God, you knew that you had the ability to create us in such a way that you could communicate to us and create us in such a way that we would be able to understand that which you have revealed to us. And so, Father, now as we study your revelation, and especially now in the church age as we have God the Holy Spirit who helps us and guides us and directs us in our understanding of your word. We pray that we might be able to understand the things we study today and that we might be challenged in our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the second chapter of Colossians. Today we're going to sort of wrap up this last paragraph of the introduction 
All this time from Colossians 1-3 down through Colossians 2-5 is the introduction to the epistle. The main thrust of this letter that Paul writes to this group of believers that he's never seen, some of whom may have seen him if they had traveled to Ephesus, but as a congregation he's never been to, to Colossae. And as he wraps up this introduction, uh, he emphasizes a couple of things that uh, transition us from the introduction to the main message. And so verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 bring us to a, a conclusion of the introduction, but they also are, are sort of a swing passage that, that leads very naturally into the first two or three verses of... Um, of the next section. The next section, the actual body of the epistle begins in Colossians 2, 6, 2, 4, and 5, end the, the introduction, 2, 6, 7, um, open the, the main body. And so we're, we're looking at that hinge section uh, today. And the focal point of this is on spiritual growth. And I've been pointing this out in the last few lessons that Paul, in an extremely personal uh, passage, beginning in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, down through the uh, end of this paragraph, that is verse 5, he, he's speaking very personally from his heart with the Colossian believers, emphasizing his priority as an apostle, the, the, the responsibility, the stewardship that has been given to him by God uh, to established churches, established congregations, and to uh, teach so that believers can grow to maturity. And in that, that this, this personal section, we see a glimpse of the priorities of the pastoral ministry as well, because at this point they overlap with the apostolic ministry. And we also see that, that there is an emphasis in this section on the fact that Paul's primary responsibility to believers was in producing spiritual growth in them and that that is the priority. It's not a social life. It's not coming together on Sunday morning so that we can uh, go back to the kitchen and have a good breakfast, which we did this morning. Um, at least a lot of you did. I came in. I thought I had walked into a cafeteria this morning. Everybody was out there eating. Um, but those are just the benefits. Those are the secondary consequences of coming together as believers, sort of the positive unintended uh, consequences of the teaching ministry, uh, teaching ministry of the church. So the focus here is on, on spiritual growth. And as we come to the end of this section in verse uh, 5, Paul talks again about their spiritual life. He uses terms like their order, their organization, their structure, their self-discipline and the steadfastness, the, the stability of their faith in Christ. And that's, how, as he, that's where he goes in the conclusion of the introduction and then the opening of, his, of the main body of the epistle. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. This is a, the first of a series of imperatives. Up to this point, the verbs have all been indicatives, with one exception, I believe. They've all been indicatives, meaning he's just talking about mostly his own, his prayers for them. There's two sections dealing with prayer at the opening, and then he shifts into a focus upon who Jesus Christ is 
and what Jesus Christ has done for the church. So the, the, the moods of the verbs have been indicative. That's a mood of stating the declarative fact. This is reality. This is what's accomplished. But starting in verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, down through chapter 3, we just get this sort of this rat-a-tat-tat, this machine gun effect of imperatives. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. And this is the structure of the Christian life. Now, I use that word structure intentionally because of the words that Paul uses here to describe the spiritual life, your order and steadfastness. It's not something that's random or haphazard, but there is a structure, there's an order in the spiritual life, and there should be a structure and an order in our approach to the spiritual life. But Paul says here that, that uh, uh, as we get down into verse uh, 7, that walking in him is on the basis of being rooted in him and now being built up in Christ. And the, these words that are used, and we've seen them already in his prayers in the first chapter, are words that, are, uh, that come out of a gardening metaphor, an agricultural uh, metaphor, and so they talk about about gardening. So as I was thinking about this, the little nursery rhyme came into my head. And I, the little uh, nursery rhyme, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Well, there's a question is, how does your garden grow? But we ought to exegete this little nursery rhyme and find out what it what it's really saying. I thought because uh, I've heard different things over the um, over the years. I'll just back up a minute while Eddie rewires me. There are different views on the background for this little nursery rhyme. One view says that it's a religious allegory of Roman Catholicism. The bells represent the holy bells of the church. The cockle shells represent the badges of Pilgrims to the uh, Shrine of St. James. We'll pause for effect there. Okay, and uh, the cockle shells represent the badges of pilgrims to the Shrine of St. James in Spain. And the pretty maids are all nuns. There's another theory that connects the rhyme to Mary, Queen of Scots. The how does your garden grow line in this view refers to her reign over her realm. The silver bells to the Catholic, Roman Catholic uh, cathedral bells and the cockle shells uh, insinuating that her husband was not faithful to her. And uh, pretty maids all in a row referring to her ladies in waiting, the four Maries. Okay, there's also one other view. I like this view, but I don't know which is right. Neither does anyone else, I think. And that is that Mary I of England, who was the um, daughter of Henry VIII, the, his son, Edward, was Protestant. After he died, Mary, who was raised in a Roman Catholic, became uh, queen. She was also known in history as Bloody Mary. And uh, the reason she was called that is because under Edward, England had uh, been uh, become Protestant. But when she became queen... Now, all the Protestants were heretics, and heretics had to be burned at the stake or beheaded. And so she instituted uh, a persecution against Protestants. And so in this view of this nursery rhyme, um, this is a reference to Bloody Mary, 
the garden is an allusion to all of the graveyards in England for the Protestant martyrs who gave their life for their faith in alone in Christ alone. The silver bells and cockle shells were terms that referred to instruments of torture, the thumb screws that they used to crush the thumb uh, as they were torturing uh, the Protestants to recant their faith in Christ alone. The cockle shells were uh, usually attached to more tender parts of the male anatomy, and the pressure then would force them to recant. The maidens that were all in a row were guillotines that were uh, first invented during this time in order to make the beheading of the, uh, of the victim more efficient. Prior to this time, it would take uh, several blows, usually by the executioner, before they would uh, take off the, the uh, head of the victim. Sometimes it was more efficient than that, but sometimes not. Sometimes the, uh, they even had to chase the uh, victim around the scaffold. There were some uh, elements of that. One referred to, to here is Margaret Pohl, for, who was executed in 1541, the Countess of Salisbury, who didn't want to go willingly to her death so that she had to be chased around the scaffold as the executioner attempted to hack her to death. So they came up with the, uh, this mechanical instrument known as the guillotine, which was to uh, originally called the maiden and shortened to maids. And so th- this interpretation says the pretty maids in a row were the line of uh, guillotines. But mostly from my reading, they were the Protestant martyrs were burned at the stake and not, uh, not beheaded. So I just thought I would throw a little extra insight there. There's also debate as to whether this was even written as early as the 16th century. So we can't come up with any firm conclusions other than it probably doesn't mean what you thought it meant or I thought it meant when we were children. But the second line, the question, is still valid, and that is how does our garden grow? As Christians, how does your spiritual garden grow? We go back to passages like Colossians in the first chapter, Colossians 1.6, Paul is praying for the Colossians, and he's, he's thankful because the gospel came to them and is bringing forth fruit as it is also and increasing, uh, bringing forth fruit and increasing as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of Christ. Again, uh, down in uh, verse uh, 10, the prayer that you may walk worthy of the Lord, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, these words that are used are words that come out of an agricultural background, a metaphor for growth and fruitfulness uh, within uh, an orchard, a garden, something uh, of that nature. This is the uh, focal point of Paul's uh, message to the Colossians. It tells us that he's not talking to them at all about how to become a Christian, how to become justified, but his focus is on the fact that now that you are justified, how do you grow and how well are we as believers uh, growing? Let's just look at these verses that I pointed out that are the real hinge section that takes us from the introduction into the main body. As Paul concludes the introduction, he says, Now this I say, 
lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. I focused on this last time, and you and I both know that there are, especially compared to the first century, thousands of philosophies and worldviews and ideas and opinions about how to live life and what truth is today that uh, more than there was in the first century. And these are uh, explained. You can go out on the Internet and you can read all kinds of data, supporting data and information for every one of these views, cults, world religions, whatever. And they appear... At the, on the, not just on the surface level, but maybe a little deeper, to be well-argued and very convincing. That's the idea that Paul had with that phrase, persuasive words. And it's easy to deceive even believers because they don't know enough to not be deceived. We have to not only know what the truth is, but a really good counterfeit can deceive even experts, because it it, it imitates the original so well, and Satan is the master counterfeiter who goes around as an angel of light, has had thousands of years to refine his different religious and philosophical systems and rationales and justifications for uh, worldly thinking so that uh, people are and Christians are often taken in by the latest trend, the latest fad in terms of spiritual things, and often they are dressed up in in biblical terminology, so that it is hard for the person who doesn't know much truth to be able to identify them, and even for people who know a lot of truth. I've seen them become easily seduced by false ideas. For several reasons. Number one, we all have sin natures that have a propensity towards anything that promotes self-sufficiency and anything that allows us to do to maybe find success or stability without just trusting in Christ for everything, without relying on the sufficiency of God's grace and God's word for everything. And so we have this, you have a mindset a default position with your sin nature to to go to be, be attracted to these things just with, without unless you're really focused on applying the word and this is why Paul says this lest anyone be uh, of you be deceived with persuasive words though I am absent in the flesh yet I'm with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ those are really important terms to understand And then he shifts to the introduction of the book. As you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And if you remember back in the uh, introduction uh, of the book, uh, in his introductory prayer, we were told in Colossians 1 6, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1 verse um, 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So we are to walk in him, we're to walk worthy in the Lord. The the opening part of the main body goes back and picks up ideas that he's mentioned two or three times already. Let's walk in him. And then we have two, uh, we really have four participles in here, but this the, the, the understanding the grammar is really important. The first is a perfect participle. We'll see it means something that's already accomplished. We're, we're 
the present reality of a past completed action, having already been rooted, that's what happens at salvation, having already been rooted and now, present tense, being built up in him and established. There's that word. It relates back to this idea of having a foundation, something um, solid, being established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then verse 8, which gets... Start, gets, starts the main part of the introduction. The two, six and seven are your hinge transition statement. Verse eight then begins, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. See how his opening point, he, in verse eight, he starts getting a little more specific about the pentalogia, that those deceptive words that he mentioned, those persuasive words of Colossians 2.4. And so we're going to make this transition now into the main part of the epistle where the focus is on how, what, you need, what we need to do as believers. The, the, those imperative moods, those commands, the prohibitions are all addressed to our volition. It's what we are responsible to do on our part if we are going to grow, uh, grow and mature uh, spiritually. So let's... Wrap up the introduction in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. In the Greek, it begins with this little particle A, which uh, for those of you who know a little Greek, this usually introduces what's called a first-class condition. In English, we can only express a condition one way, and that's saying, if you do this. If it rains tomorrow, which this year in the midst of our drought is highly unlikely, but if it rains tomorrow, we're saying maybe it will, maybe it won't, it probably won't, but there's still a contingency, uh, we would use one way of expressing it in Greek. In Greek. And if we were saying, well, if it, rain, if, it, if it doesn't rain tomorrow, because we're pretty sure it's not going to rain tomorrow, we might express it a different way. And so in Greek, there were different ways in which you express these if statements. And here it's expressed through this uh, uh, first-class condition. But in this type of a structure, it really comes across as meaning uh, have more of a concessive idea, although or though. And it almost comes close to uh, stating it as a fact of of sense because it's stating this opening uh, phrase as a as a reality, and that is that Paul is absent in the flesh. It just means he's physically absent. There's some people who come in here and they try to make this contrast between flesh and spirit as somehow he's able to see what's going on in Colossae and he's, uh, his human spirit somehow is able to uh, see certain things or God's revealing certain things. And this just, just re- tries to read a lot of... Uh, I don't know, mystical nonsense into the verse. It's not there. It's, it's typical in the language was to draw this contrast that if you did something, in, in the term in the flesh was just materially or physically, and in the spirit was just in terms of your your mindset. If you look the word spirit or the Greek word pneuma up in a Greek dictionary, it has a, has a range of meanings, wind, air, breath, 
the immaterial part of man, uh, more technically the human spirit, uh, in a more technical way, also referring to, this, to the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. And so whenever you see this word, you have to ask questions, well, what does it mean in this phrase or this clause? And one way in which the word is, spirit is used is to refer to a, a mental attitude or a way of thinking. So, uh, there are phrases like spirit of bitterness, and that just simply is talking about somebody who is bitter, or they have an, or, or, it might say an angry spirit. They just have an attitude of being, uh, of being angry. And so here Paul is simply saying, I'm with you in spirit. I'm thinking about you. My mind is on you. And I'm thinking about what is going on there. And then when we get into this, uh, the, the next section, it begins with this ing word in English, which, uh, reflects, uh, an interesting grammar in, in the Greek. It's called a hendiatis. Actually, you have two participles. That would be, uh, you might translate literally rejoicing and seeing. But in this kind of construction, it's, uh, it's called a hendiadis, where you have two words that are brought together to express a single concept, and many times one of them really functions sort of as an adjective for uh, another. For example, if uh, someone says that, uh, uh, I heard I heard a musician the other day, and I was impressed by his passion and his singing. Well, what you are saying is you are impressed by their passionate singing. So the t- you, you, you can express it as two different words, but you're really it's a figure of speech that pulls the two together. And so here, when Paul says this, uh, uh, I, I'm rejoicing and seeing, it, it, it means... I'm rejoicing to see. Now, he's not seeing physically. He's not talking about something he's looking at, but he's, talk, he's using the word to see. As I pointed out the other night, we talked about knowledge, that often in Greek, as in English, and we may even get the, the English idiom from the Bible. It's amazing how many phrases and idioms we have in English that have their ultimate source in the Bible, that, that seeing is a, way, a metaphorical way of talking about mental perception, understanding or grasping an idea. So it is something that uh, we, we, we try to understand something, and when we do, we say, oh, I see. We understand it. It's a idiom for mental perception. So Paul is talking about this, that he is rejoices because he's been informed about the spiritual life of those in Colossae. And he summarizes it here with, with two words. The first word is taxes, not Texas. Taxes. That, and that's not talking about something that comes out of your paycheck either. Taxes. It is related to the English word taxonomy. That's where we get our English word, uh, taxonomy, which is a study of uh, the order or organization of things. So you can have the taxonomy of learning. You can have the ta- taxonomy related to uh, uh, species and genus and um, you know, the breaking down uh, biological categories. And the word has uh, two basic meanings. First of all, it's an arrangement of things in sequence or in order. Uh, it talks about a fixed succession or fixed order of things. The second is uh, not the first is an arrangement in order, and the second is a state of order uh, or proper procedure. 
So it is also a word that was used uh, in the military, in a military context, to refer to discipline, to refer to uh, uh, well-disciplined troops. Now, there are some that when, as soon as you see that a word is used in a military context, they, they focus on that. But how many words do we use in everyday language in English that are also used with a little more technical word in the military? Discipline, order, ranks. Those, a lot of words are used with a little more precision in a military context, but there are also words that are used in very, very similar ways in everyday English language. And that was just as true in Greek. There are uh, numerous, numerous examples of both of these words used in everyday language in Greek, not just in a military context. The military context just refined it uh, a, a little bit. But the idea here is that Paul is saying is that in praising the spiritual life of the, of the Colossian believers, He's praising them because they have a good discipline, a good self-discipline, a good organization or order in their approach to their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. And then the second word that he, uh, and this also reminds us of some passages in, in Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 14, two verses, verse 33, states that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And then in verse 40 of that chapter, Paul then says, therefore, it's, it's, there's a conclusion here based on the fact that God is the God of peace and order, that all things should be done decently and in order in the church. And the word for order here is the same word that we have here in, um, in Colossians 2, uh, 2 5 so that there we should think about the structure of our spiritual life and our approach to our spiritual life. Most people, I think, approach your spiritual life in a somewhat random, haphazard manner that, uh, oh, I'll be at church this week and next week I may, may be able to listen to a lesson uh, one day this week, one day next week, uh, memorization of Scripture while well, I've managed to memorize one or two scriptures last year or that was on my list the last three years to start memorizing scripture and it's back again this year maybe next year i'll take it off since i just can't quite get there notice how i just lowered the standard a little bit but that's not what paul is praising here paul is praising the fact that the colossians have understood that if they're going to grow spiritually they have to have an approach to their spiritual life that is going to be based upon uh, order, organization, and self-discipline. The second word is stereoma, uh, uh, which refers to stability, firmness, and steadfastness. And so it, it's emphasizing that, that they have an approach to the spiritual life that is, number one, based on discipline and organization. And secondly, it's based on stability. It is a solid approach. I think this is really important to understand, and also it's important in terms of, of uh, our own, uh, own spiritual life. So he says that he rejoices. He is excited. This isn't just the joy of his stability in Christ, but it's, this is a circumstantially based joy. He's heard great news. You guys are growing. You have made it a point 
to 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 focus on your spiritual life and you've attacked it from a position of organization and stability and that's the only way we ever accomplish anything in life is if we make a plan and we set out that plan and we follow that plan and we have to understand that we don't lower our goals and objectives just because we find things to be a little difficult we have to learn to stick it out we have to learn to be mentally tough we come out of a generation of baby boomers that have basically chosen generationally to be mental wimps and uh, not to stick things out. We want the government to solve all of our problems or someone else to go handle all of our problems, and we're not willing to uh, face the negative consequences of our own bad or foolish or weak decisions. We're not willing to handle the tough issues in life uh, as previous generations of Texans and Americans did. And a lot of that was based on the fact that they understood a lot of the principles of personal responsibility and self-reliance that are taught in the scriptures from the time of Adam's fall all the way through, all the way through Revelation, that we have to learn to be mentally tough, not just because we're sort of reaching down and pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps in a sort of an Americanistic or uh, Texas philosophy kind of way, but because we realize that our strength is in Christ. That's why Paul can say at the end of uh, Philippians that I have learned to have great abundance and I've learned to do without. It's the doing without that we have trouble learning about. Why? Because I can do all things. What are the all things there? It's learning to pass the prosperity test and learning to pass the adversity test. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, it's the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. What we have in Christ in terms of those, those riches that are talked about in Colossians 2, 2, the riches of the full assurance of understanding that we have uh, in Christ. So he says here that he rejoices in their good order or their discipline and their steadfastness or stability of their faith in Christ. This isn't talking about uh, simply that beginning point where we trust in Christ for salvation, but it's talking about the totality of our uh, of what we believe in in terms of Christ and all that Jesus is and all that he has has done because he's not talking here in context about getting saved or becoming justified he's talking about the process of growth from that position of initial birth uh, being born again or regenerated. And so it is the development, the growth of that faith in Christ. Jesus referred to all that was needed was faith like a mustard seed. Mustard seed is one of the tiniest seeds in creation. And when we first trust Christ, it's compared to that small small mustard seed, but yet it, it planted and it is nourished and it grows into a, into a large tree. And that's the uh, comparison again uh, to the Christian life. So Paul focuses on the fact that he rejoices over their focus, their discipline, and the steadfastness of their faith. Now, as I look at this, I was thinking, now... 
What exactly does that mean in terms of my own spiritual life? And so I want to ask you, have you asked yourself this kind of a question? If the Apostle Paul were writing this letter to you, would he say something like that? Would he say that, as I've come to understand your spiritual life, and you just put your name in there in place of your, would he say, I'm really thankful that you have a well-organized, structured, stable approach to spiritual growth? That's an important question. A lot of people, I don't think, uh, really ask that question. And so we ought to go to another level and say, what is it that makes a spiritual life orderly and organized? What is it that we should do in order to be at that place in terms of our, our, our spiritual growth? Well, we need to recognize that this idea of being self-disciplined is an extremely important value that I'm not sure is as, as well taught today as it once was. I remember when I was in elementary school that you used to have on one side of the report card a list of your academic uh, disciplines, arithmetic and English and other things that you were studying. Those were usually graded on the basis of A through F. And then on the other side, there were basically various character qualities, you know, punctual, um, self-discipline was one. I don't remember what the others were. And when I was in about the uh, fourth grade, I became uh, conscious of my father's Marine Corps K-bar knife that he had uh, when he was in the Marine Corps. And as most of you know, uh, he was on the first wave uh, with the 4th Marine Division at Iwo Jima. And so I uh, began to lust after that K-bar knife. And he said, well, if you can get pluses three, six weeks in a row in self-discipline, then I will give that to you. Now, the only reason I probably ever got that knife was because between the sixth grade and seventh grade, they quit doing that, and so you just got a conduct grade. And I think in elementary school, they, they start, you started with an F, and if you, got, if you uh, demonstrated uh, how good you were, then your grade would come up. In junior high, I think they really had this reversed, but in junior high, you started with an E, and you had to do bad things to get graded down. And so it was easier to maintain whatever level you started off than to go up or down. And so I was able to get three E's by the, my first semester in the seventh grade, and I got that K-bar knife. Uh, anyone in the flesh, in their own natural ability, can learn to exercise self-discipline. Look at the athletes that are out there that achieve incredible things. Look at musicians. Look at artists. Look at uh, successful businessmen, look at uh, academicians and others who pursue master's degrees and doctoral degrees, and they, they go for, for years on three or four hours of sleep a night, if that, uh, reading thousands of pages a, a, a week and assimilating all of that information in order to achieve specific goals and objectives in their life. And so much can be done just in our own natural power. But the Scripture says that part of the fruit, the spiritual character that the Holy Spirit produces in us is self-control. It's a Greek word, inkratia, which means to, has to do with the restraint of our, of our sin nature and our self-centered desires. It's also mentioned in uh, passages like uh, 2 Peter 1 through 5. It's 
indicated in verse 6, translated as self-control. Notice how it fits within the flow of what Peter is saying in that chapter. He says, but also for this reason, giving all diligence. Diligence, that's uh, related to the, uh, uh, really a better translation of the word, translate study to show yourself approved under God. In, in Hebrews, it should be diligent. It has, it, again, it's an application of a measure of self-discipline to set a task and then to stick to it. Uh, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. That's that word in kratia. All of this, therefore, must be produced by God the Holy Spirit, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here in Colossians uh, 2.5 is saying that even though I'm not with you, I've heard about you, and what I rejoice over in you is a disciplined, stable approach to spiritual, uh, to spiritual growth. So what makes a spiritual life orderly and organized is, is an element of, of, um, of self-discipline. We have to define what we want. Now, different people are satisfied with different things. You may be satisfied in some area of life with excellence and in another area of life with mediocrity. The next person may switch those around. But I find that in any area of pursuit in life, many of us at the very beginning set out maybe even an unstated or unrefined goal of if I reach this level of proficiency, I'll be happy. Now, the problem with that is when you translate that kind of thinking over to the spiritual life, what we should be saying is what level of proficiency does God want me to reach? And only when I reach that level of proficiency will I be satisfied. And one thing that I've noticed as a pastor over the years is that that this really plays itself out in the lives of a lot of people. They reach a level of mediocre proficiency in the spiritual life or mediocre plus proficiency in the spiritual life, and next thing you know, you wonder where they are. They've sort of hit semi-retirement in terms of spiritual growth. They've achieved a level that personally satisfies them, but that's not the issue. The issue is, does it satisfy God? So we need to define what, what our target goal is, and then we need to define what the mechanics are or what the stages are to get there. This also involves just basic skills like time management. How do I manage the disposable time in my week so that I can spend a certain amount of time reading the Bible, a certain amount of time in prayer, and a certain amount of time in Bible study? And all three of those are fundamental. They're foundational to anything in the Christian life. We need to have time in prayer Every day, a set focused time in prayer. Have a prayer list. We put out a prayer list from the church. Have a prayer list, and whether it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it should be, it should be a disciplined, regular, orderly time that you can set aside uh, each day. A time for Bible reading. Uh, every believer should be reading their Bible on a daily basis. I remember years ago talking with a uh, pastor who at that time had been a pastor for about 30 years, and he said, I'm constantly telling my congregation they need to read their Bible at least, you know, try to read it 20 or 30 minutes a day. 
And if I'm telling them to read or, or, or four or five chapters a day, if I'm telling them to read four or five chapters a day, I get I'm a full-time professional pastor. I ought to be reading 40 or 50 chapters a day. And for many years, I did that. I don't do that as much anymore. I'm a little busier in the pastorate, and that takes a couple of hours every morning. But um, it is important to be reading a chapter, two chapters, three chapters a day, just for your general fund of knowledge of what the Bible says. And you're going to come up with questions and say, why does it say this? And I thought the pastor taught that. Well, then you can come to Bible class and ask me a question. That's how we grow. We learn. We don't grow by just reading the things that confirm what we already know. That's a recipe for, for reversal. So you need to be reading your Bible just, just so you know who, what, when, where, and why so that when I say certain things from the pulpit, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. I read about that the other day. I know who that person is. That's amazing. So we need to focus on uh, personal prayer time, Bible reading, and Bible study. A complaint I have heard since I started uh, at Preston City in 98, only teaching three times a week, is people say, I wish you'd teach more. I want to have five or six classes a week. Well, one of the reasons I only teach three times a week is because you should be taking the notes from one Bible class one night, and the next night you should be studying them. You have to have time to think and reflect upon what you have been taught. We can't just sit there with somebody turning on a fire hose and sticking it in our mouth 24-7. You have to have time to stop and swallow, assimilate, think about it. And so you know, I encourage everybody, take notes, go back, listen, listen to the lessons again, uh, review them, look up the scriptures, think about what was said, why it was said, and read the verses in Scripture, and and that's your personal time. That's taking what I've done. See, if all you're doing is taking notes from what I teach, then you're trying to get into heaven on my spiritual life coattails. That didn't work. You need to be in the Word. You need to take what's being taught, just like you would if you were if you were taking any course down at at U of H, A and M, Texas, any university, whatever. What do you do? You go to class, you take your notes, you go home and you study your notes because you know that eventually what was taught in that lecture is what you're going to have to regurgitate on a test. But if it's related to a future career, that's going to have to be embedded within the thinking of your own soul. And you can't do that if all you do is listen to lectures. You've got to study the notes. So that's part of our Bible study. So... What Paul says here is that uh, even though he's absent from the flesh, he rejoices to see their stability and order. And then he, as he transitions in 2.6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now this is introducing what the thrust of the next two chapters, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, is how we maintain that walk in him without going out of bounds. That's what the imperatives do is they set the boundaries for staying in fellowship and walking in him. Walking in him is comparable to all of the other walk-type passages that we have in the New Testament, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, walking in the light and not in the darkness. 
And he, he will modify this or give us the manner and means in verse 7 based on the fact that we've already been rooted in him. That happens at salvation, and we're never uprooted. Rooted in him and now being built up and established in the faith. How does that happen? That's what we'll get into in the next uh, several weeks. Uh, and establishing it as you have been taught. Notice it comes from teaching, the teaching of those who are gifted within the body of Christ to teach and abounding in it with thanksgiving, being thankful that we're being taught the word. And that is so rare today. I mean, it's not rare here, but it's rare among evangelicals who, who have so lowered the bar in terms of their expectations of teaching and expectations of spiritual growth that they don't live any differently from the, from the rest of the world. We are to be, um, we're to be taught well and be thankful for what we have. And then this also leads to understanding enough so that we have the, the wall, the defensive walls up so that we can be protected from the counterfeits that are camouflaged to seduce us into thinking we're living a spiritual life that we're not. And we'll get into that in the, in the coming weeks. But the focal point here is to, is on this whole issue of having an orderly, organized spiritual life. Go back. Look through Colossians chapter 1. Think about what Paul prays for, what he's thankful for in the life of the Colossian believers, what he prays for them. That's, these are the spiritual priorities we should have in our own life. And then the last part of that section from verse 13 down through uh, chapter 2, verse 5, focuses on who Jesus Christ is. When we understand who he is, that is supposed to change how we think and how we live. So the question you should ask, we should all ask, in terms of application is, if Jesus is X, as Paul says here, how does that change, how should that change the way I think and the way I live? That's your application. If Jesus is the creator of all things, how does that change the way I think and how I live? If, if I have uh, redemption and forgiveness of sins in Jesus, how should that change the way I think and how I live and how I respond to things? That's application. That's where you and I need to sit down and be and, and the process of thinking about the application of Scripture. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we're thankful for this time together this morning to focus upon your word, to focus on who Jesus is, to focus on uh, how we are to live and grow spiritually and to think uh, more precisely in a more organized, structured, disciplined manner about our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. Father, we pray that you would challenge us in these particular areas. And, Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here that's un unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, every sin. There's no sin left unpaid for. There's nothing the omniscience of God forgot about or the omnipotence of God forgot to deal with on the cross. And so simply by trusting in Christ, we have eternal life, forgiveness of sin for all eternity, and that we can have joy everlasting. Now, Father, we pray that you would 
make this clear to those who need to understand the gospel. And for those who are already believers, we pray that you would challenge us to focus more conscientiously on our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.